0: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at quite a chunk of the passage here, verses 23 through 46, where the Holy Scriptures read. And when he being Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the temple came up to him as, it was, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, "'Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. "'What do you think? A man had two sons, "'and he went to the first and said, "'Son, go and work in the vineyard today.' "'And he answered, I will not. "'But afterwards he changed his mind and went. "'He went to the other son and said the same. "'And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. "'Which of the two sons did the will of his father? "'They said, the first. Jesus said to them, "Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Here another parable: There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenant took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never heard in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we go to God's word today. Father, we ask that you would be our teacher through your spirit. We ask that we would understand these truths, not just with our minds, but with our hearts in a way that doesn't just emotionally stir us, but changes our affections. So Lord, help us to realize that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And as followers of him, he is our Lord. And so we ask that you would help us to bend our knee to his rule and reign in our lives, knowing that he is the king who became the servant for all dying upon a cross willingly so that we might be the sons and daughters of the king. Help us to understand this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a routine traffic stop on early Sunday morning when 28-year-old Clement Martinez pulled over a motorist on the corner of Apple and 3rd in Greenfield, California, for speeding. But it would be anything but a routine stop because it quickly escalated to Omar's authority being directly challenged. After turning on his lights and pulling the man over, Clement Martinez approached the vehicle only to meet a man who was ready and prepared to directly challenge his authority. The man didn't care about Martinez's uniform. He didn't care at all about the vehicle's flashing lights. None of it caused him to pause and think, do I really want to challenge this guy's authority? And why not? Why didn't he think he should stop and consider the authority that was before him? Because Omar wasn't a real police officer. And not only was Omar not a real police officer, but get this, the man who he pulled over, was, in fact, a real police officer. In fact, he was a sergeant for the Greenfield Police Department, and so when Martinez pulled him over, the sergeant knew right away that this man was not the police officer he claimed to be. He did not have the authority that he thought he possessed, which then led to the sergeant using his real authority to arrest Martinez for attempting to use an authority that he did not have which is called the crime of impersonating a police officer. And it is a very serious crime, but it gets even better because after Martinez tried to flee the scene, he was then arrested. And when they asked him why he did it, here's what he said. He said it was because the man he pulled over, he thought that man was a drunk driver and he wanted to warn him of the dangers of drinking and driving which was sort of ironic and yet hypocritical because when they ran a breathalyzer test on Martinez, it came back positive, showing that he was actually the drunk driver. And not only that, he was also driving with a suspended license for previous DUI convictions. And so Martinez was arrested and sentenced by the true authority for not only breaking the law but for claiming to have an authority that he did not, in fact, have. And this brings us directly to Matthew 21, where we find almost the exact same situation where the religious leaders have attempted to pull Jesus over with an authority they think they have in which they don't actually have. And not only are they without authority, but like Martinez, they came to find out that the man before them was the one who had all true authority. And why? Why? because Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords, which is a truth that these men, the religious leaders, could not bring themselves to bear. It was a pill that they could not swallow. But it's a truth that every single one of us must come to swallow if we are going to enter King Jesus's kingdom. And so... That's the challenge before us all. We must bow the knee to Jesus' authority. We must accept his authority. And we do so in three ways. First, we must surrender. Second, we must submit. And third, we must seek. Now, throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen a close-up preview of Jesus's divine kingly authority. What has he done throughout Matthew's gospel? A whole lot of things that show his authority. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He walked on water. He calmed a storm. He fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. He caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. And just before this incident, he raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. That's some authority. See, doctors, they think they have some authority. Sometimes people say doctors and surgeons, they think they're God because they can bring life back to people and stuff. That's not even close to what Jesus did, is it? Not even close. And yet, despite the ever growing obviousness of Jesus' authority, the religious leaders still go on to insist nope, you're not the authority, we are. And boy, were they wrong. And that's precisely what we find happening in verses 23 through 27 when they approach Jesus in the temple and they ask him a question. They say, what gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do what you're doing? And what is Jesus doing? Well, as we saw in the last couple of weeks in the first part of Matthew chapter 21, he made the ultimate authority power play. How so? After coming in to the city, riding upon an a donkey, a lowly donkey, and people shouting Hosanna, giving him praise and acclamation, Jesus then strolls into the temple, which is the very temple that they were in charge of, the temple that they regulated, that they allegedly have a, had authority over, and he directly challenged their authority there. How? By moving the furniture around, by turning the tables, because they had turned it into a den of robbers. And so he directly challenged their authority. And by moving the furniture around, not only did he challenge their authority, but he made an extremely bold claim, which was, this is my house. I say where things go. The couch goes there. You don't do that there. This is my place. I have full authority here. But that's a bold claim because whose house is this? God's. Well, who is Jesus? He's the son of God. And so does Quite the bold claim, and it's a bold authority claim that these religious leaders refused to accept. So then in verse 25, we see Jesus engaging in a game of intellectual chess with them, where he basically shows them that he is the Bobby Fischer of intellectual chess. If you don't know who that is, he's considered the greatest chess player ever. But in this interaction, he shows them that not only is he vastly superior to them in this game of intellectual chess match, but they're just beginners at the game. There's not, it's not even a contest. And so he does this by answering their question with a question. See, that's biblical. I do it all the time. Now, you know, Jesus does it so we can do it too. So after they ask him where his authority comes from, look what he says in verse 24. He says, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then what does he ask them? Look at verse 25. He says, was the baptism of John of heaven or earth? Was it of God or was it of man? Boom, checkmate right there. And why so? Because if they say that Jesus is, or that John the Baptist was from God or wasn't from God, if they say, nope, he wasn't from God, all the people there thought John the Baptist was a prophet and they were risking getting on the bad side of the people. Not only that, they were risking an uprising at a time when all the people were coming to Jerusalem, okay? And this would have been a bad thing because Rome would have come down hard upon them. The people knew that John was a prophet. In fact, even King Herod did, which is why he didn't want to execute John. And he only did so after he was trapped in a corner after he foolishly got drunk and made a very, very foolish promise. So the Pharisees knew that they couldn't say John was a false prophet because they didn't want to upset the crowds and cause Rome's boot coming down hard upon them. So they were stuck because they couldn't go with the other option either. And why not? Because what did John say about Jesus? John 1 29 says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they couldn't admit that because then they would be answering the very question that they just asked, which is, hey, where does your authority come from? Obviously from God. But instead, these disingenuous cowards, what do they do? They say, oh, we don't know. Hmm, we don't know. And so Jesus looks at them in verse 27. He says, all right, not going to admit what the obvious is, then I, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. And interesting enough, he just did tell them. <laughs> and the reason Jesus says that is because he knew that instead of admitting it, they stubbornly refused to. Why, though? Because ultimately they refused to surrender their authority to him. And because Jesus knew this, then he gives them a couple of parables to show them the truth that he's just showed them. So that's what we have going on in this passage. Jesus is showing his authority, and he's showing that now through parables. And this first parable is in verse 28. And this is a parable about a man with two sons. So what happens here is the man goes to the first son. He's a vineyard owner, right? He goes goes to his son. He says, hey, go work in the fields, all right? And this was at a time and when the older brother back then, they would have all the prestige, all the claim. In fact, when the father would die, basically the rest of the younger siblings would end up serving the older brother because pretty much everything went to him. And so most likely here, this first son, theologians, commentators will tell you, this is, this is the younger son. Because culturally, you didn't go to the older son and do this. And as we keep looking here, we're gonna see that this is in fact the younger son. But what happens is, is he goes to this younger son and he says, go into the vineyard and work. And what does the younger son say to his father? He says, "Mm, no, I got a better idea. How about I'm not going to do that? Like he's straight up defiant about it. There's there's no, oh yeah, I'll get around to it, dad. You know, like our kids often do. They just straight up say, nope, not doing it. Now in our culture, we read that and we probably think, oh, that's a pretty strong-willed kid. Maybe he needs a timeout. Not in that day. This was extremely disrespectful. This was a very serious matter because back then, you just didn't flat out disobey your father's instructions, not if you wanted to keep your life. Because think in the Old Testament, what was the penalty in the Old Testament for being a rebellious child? It wasn't a timeout, unless you want to call a timeout from life a timeout. It was the death penalty. It was a capital offense. It was a very serious thing. And the readers of Jesus' day would have understood that. They would have heard this and been like, oh, no son of mine going to do that. So it was very offensive. But then what happens? The son, after flat out disobeying, after flat out disrespecting the father, he changes his mind and then he obeys. Now how about the other brother, who is most likely here, the older brother? What does he do? Uh, It says in verse 30 that he agrees to go okay, dad, I'll go. Pretty good, right? But then he doesn't. He doesn't actually go. So then Jesus asked the religious leaders, after giving him the parable here of these two brothers, he says, which one of these two sons obeyed the father? And in response, they rightly answer, it is the first son, the one who was disrespectful, the one who was extremely rude and refused to go, but then repented and decided to go after changing his mind. And then look at the shocking statement that Jesus just drops on them in verse 31. What does he say? It says to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. And that's not like a, they go in first, you go in after. It's a, they go in, you watch them go in before you and you're out. That's what he's getting at here. Okay, and then verse 32, why? For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, remember in Jesus's day, prostitutes and tax collectors were considered the absolute worst sinners of them all. They were the worst of the worst. For they, like the older brother, flat out refused to obey God's will. They said, mm -mm, not doing it. I'm gonna be a tax collector. I'm gonna go the way of prostitution. I don't even care what the law says. I'm just gonna flagrantly disobey it. They weren't even trying to hide it. They were straight up disobedience, disobedient and refused to obey him. And yet in verse 30, what do they end up doing? What does Jesus say they do? They change their minds. And he says, these are the ones who will go into the kingdom. Now do you see why the religious leaders are furiously upset with Jesus? He just told them that they're worse than the worst of the worst. They're worse than prostitutes, worse than tax collectors. And Why? Because unlike that brother who refused but then obeyed, these brothers, the, this brother, which is the religious leaders, straight up refused to obey. Or they said they would obey, but then they didn't. The one brother said he would, refused to, repented, obeyed. The other brother was like, okay, I'll do it. And then they didn't. And verse 29 tells us that they changed their minds. The first brother did, right? And in the Greek, the word here for that changed mind, what is it? It's Repentance. That's the same exact word. But the second brother, the self-entitled older brother, did he repent? One person is with me. Okay, good. No, he didn't repent. Not at all. He says he will obey, but he doesn't. And so these two brothers, really what they represent is two kind of attitudes before God. The first brother, who does that brother represent? That brother represents the non-religious types, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the atheists, the drug addict, maybe the person who's been in prison several times. But that person accepts the mercy and grace of God and repents, they change their mind and they go on to obey the will of father. What about that second brother? Well, as we said, that's the religious leaders who say that they will obey God, but they don't. And Jesus tells them that that's who they are. And they refused to because they didn't believe John's message, whereas the prostitutes and tax collectors did. And what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind is what that word repent means. And though they arrogantly claimed to obey the will of the father, the truth was, despite all their religious activity, despite all their moralism, they were just as disobedient as the first brother, weren't they? Yes, they were except that there's a key difference between these two brothers because the second brother refused to repent whereas the this one brother here did repent the first brother but they did repent and surrender to the will of the father so the difference here isn't a difference of obedience they were they were both disobedient but one was repentant one wasn't okay that's Jesus's point the one brother surrendered to the father's authority after rebelling, and the second brother did not and continued on rebelling, even though that brother thought he wasn't. Now remember, in Jesus' time, blatantly disobeying your father came with serious, potentially life-threatening consequences. As we said in the Old Testament, it's a capital offense for that. But does the father execute both of his disobedient sons right there on the spot? No. He's merciful he's gracious. And to the brother who repents, what does he give him? Mercy. He doesn't kill him. And this this is really interesting because in Luke 15, we find a parable of two more sons. Okay. And in that passage, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, we read about how the younger brother, the disobedient brother goes off, you know, spends all of his money, disrespects the father asking for his inheritance early, goes off, spends all of his money on prostitutes and partying. It's really bad. It's a a moral train wreck is what it is. But the older son, he stays and obeys the father. And when the younger son repents, when he changes his mind and comes home, the older brother sits there with his arms crossed and he refuses to come into the kingdom feast. And make no mistake, these parables are telling us the exact same truth. And that's telling us ultimately that both of us, whether the, we're the older brother or the younger brother, the first brother or the second brother, the prodigal brother or the religiously obedient brother, we need to repent, to change our minds, and to surrender to God and put ourselves completely under his authority, asking him for his mercy and grace. Okay? But older brothers don't do that. They don't, do they? They absolutely don't. They say, repent? Are you kidding me? I got to repent as much as the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors do? What a joke. What are you talking about? They get upset when they see the fatted calf being slaughtered and the more rebellious younger prodigal brother is treated with love and kindness. It upsets them because in their mind, they were obedient. They said, yeah, I'll obey you. And in their mind, they're doing it, but they're not. In their mind, they're serving the father because they're not out there taking bribes like tax collectors or selling their body like a prostitute. And yet, they need to repent just as much as the brother who does, just as much as the brother who is like the tax collector or the prostitute. And so in response, Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom ahead of you, before you, you stay out and they go in. And why? Because they repented and you didn't. That's really what this is getting at here. See, prostitutes know that they are vile people. Tax collectors know that they're traitors. They just don't care because they're like, I like money. I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care if I'm betraying my people. I'm, I like money. But moral people, religious people, they don't think that, do they? No, they don't. What do they think? They think, I'm not so bad. I don't need all that mercy and grace like, like they do, maybe, maybe a tiny bit. But really, I mean, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm living a pretty good life. Sure, I'm not perfect. I mean, come on, nobody's perfect. Like, get real. Okay, but I'm I'm pretty close to it, you know, especially compared to them. So don't tell me that I need God's mercy and grace just as much as the prodigals do. It's not true. That's the way they think. But it is true. It's absolutely true. Because the truth is, every single one of us is a sinner who desperately needs the mercy and the grace of God. And this shows up a lot of time in churches, does it not? People who grew up in the church, people who maybe are more faithful to church, what do they do when that person comes in who's a prodigal? They look down upon them. They start to get a sense of moral superiority. Oh, look at that prodigal son or daughter tripping up all the time. (laughs) Oh, it should be more like Jesus. Me, I mean Jesus. Wait, Wait, yeah, Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, you get prideful, you get arrogant. You start to think that you're superior to that person. But we're not. All of us, no matter if we're the first brother or the second brother, the older brother or the prodigal brother, we're accepted by God simply because of God's loving mercy and grace. That's it. And if we don't recognize that, we will continue to respond to God in an unsubmissive and treasonous way, which leads us to our second point and the second parable. To accept Jesus' kingly authority, we must surrender, and secondly, we must submit. So in verse 33, Jesus gives another parable about a landowner, who is God, that's who it represents, and the vineyard that he leases out to tenants to work the land. And notice all the work that the owner does for it. He gets a fence put around it to protect it. He digs the wine press. He builds the tower to protect it. He does all that. And then he hands it over to these tenants. He goes to another country, and he says, here you go. Take care of the land. Yes, you'll have some of the blessings, some of the benefits, but this is my land. I'm the landowner here. You work for me. And so then the harvest comes. He sends servants to collect the fruit. And what do the tenants do in in response to the master's servants? Verse 35 tells us, it says that they beat one, killed another, and stoned another, which is literally what Israel did over and over and over to God's prophets as he sent them throughout the years. Jesus is like, which one of the prophets didn't your, didn't your forefathers murder? Like You were against all of them. And if that wasn't enough, the master sends even more servants, and yet these rebellious tenants do the same thing yet again. So what does he do? Look at verse 37. This is remarkable. He says, I will send my son. This is an incredibly outrageous idea. Okay, this parable almost falls apart right here for the listeners, man, because it's like, wait, what? No, nobody does that. That's ridiculous. Why would you send your son after they killed your servants over and over and over? You're gonna send your son? You're gonna risk your son for these people? No, send in the armies, get Rome in there, wipe them out. Come down upon, hard upon their neck with your boot. That would be the thought process here. That would be the right response. Why on earth would you send your son? That's the last person you should send. I was reading actually about this and how in Jesus' day, there was a town where that town killed one of Rome's messengers. And you know what Rome did in response? They didn't send Caesar's son. They sent the army and they wiped out the entire town to send a message, which was, don't you ever challenge our authority. Pretty brutal. Not only that, but Roman law held that if an owner was murdered, it wasn't just the one slave who was executed. All of the slaves were executed. They didn't mess around. Because back in their day, lower class people were seen as that, lower class, and you didn't touch the upper class people. They were way more valuable. And yet here, the master of the vineyard doesn't respond with justice and wrath. He responds with mercy and with kindness by sending his son. It's outrageous. And yet what do these servants do in light of this generosity, in light of this mercy and this grace? Look at verses 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Clearly, Jesus is talking about himself here. Okay, this is obvious to us uh, because he is the son of God, the son of the vineyard owner who was sent into the vineyard. And by the way, the Bible in the vineyard almost always represents Israel. And you can look at Isaiah chapter five to see that. But why do they do this? Why do they respond this way? Like how one pastor puts it, he says, it's because the human heart deep down inside knows we are tenants, but wants to live as if we are the owners, as if we are the masters. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We want to be the authority of our lives. We don't want to be told what to do. But the truth is we are not masters. We are tenants. We didn't even build the vineyard. This planet is not ours. Who made it? God made it, and yet we think, "Oh, you know what? I can come in here. I can set up shot. I'm not going to listen to His story. I'm not going to give Him the fruit that I owe Him. I'm going to live. I'm going to make this about me. This is my life. And when the servants of God come along, what do we do? Now, maybe today we don't flat out kill them and ignore them and try to, you know, harm them. We ignore them. We say, "Yeah, I don't have to listen to you." Our hearts say, "We aren't going to serve God. We're going to serve ourselves." Our hearts all naturally say, why don't we be the king? We don't need to submit to his lordship. And anyone who tells us otherwise is our enemy. So when God's servants show up, we respond in hostility towards them. When God's word is preached and shared with us, we ignore it. We downplay it. We disregard it. And the reason we do that is because inside the cry of, inside the center of every human heart is the battle cry, which says, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. And so we must come to recognize that that is the cry of every single one of our hearts, whether we are naturally more moral and more religious, or we're more like the prodigal. It's there. It's in there. See, you can use religion and morality to disobey. Can't you? Of course you can. Because the way this works, the way that legalism works is you say, okay, I'm going to just give the bare minimum to God, what I have to give to him, I'll check the boxes, and then he'll leave me alone to do what, with what I want with the rest of the vineyard. That's not how it works, though. That's not how it works when you're a tenant. The whole thing is his. And so being a good person is not, uh, is not enough. It's actually rebellion to trust in your goodness and your righteousness. The reality is, we are not good people who just need a little bit of help. The reality is is we are deep-down, depraved moral sinners, who are completely bankrupt rebels who need to come to bend the knee to God's authority. It's the right thing to do. And as verses 41 through 40 tell us, that's precisely uh, what we need to do. And if we don't, what's gonna happen? Then one day God will send in the troops and there will be justice, there will be wrath. And as scripture tells us, that day is coming very, very soon. And yet until that day comes, what is the gracious King offering us? He offers us pardon. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace. What's the condition? If we will but repent, if we will change our mind and bow the knee to his son, King Jesus, who is the one with all authority. And it is this son whom we all, in our hearts or whether back then in his day, are responsible for murdering him upon the cross. And so we must come to seek shelter in him. To accept Jesus' kingly authority, we must first surrender. We must second, submit, and third, we must seek. Look at verses 42 and 43. What do they say? Jesus said to them, "'Have you never read in the scriptures "'the stone that the builders rejected "'has become the cornerstone?' "'This was the Lord's doing, "'and it is marvelous in our eyes. "'Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God "'will be taken away from you "'and given to a people producing its fruits, "'and the one who falls on this stone "'will be broken to pieces.'" which reminds us of Psalm 2, if you're familiar with that chapter. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected. Not only did they reject him, but they crucified him. And yet by God's mercy and grace, Christ rose from the dead victoriously so that he could become the marvelous cornerstone for those who trust in him by grace through faith, which then does what? Enables us Fruitless sinners to produce fruits worthy enough for the kingdom. That's how it works. See, if you try to just produce fruits on your own in your arrogance and your pride, it's going to be filthy rags before God. It does not cut it. You will not enter the kingdom by your righteousness. But if you bow the knee to his authority and accept his mercy and grace in repentance, you will enter the kingdom not just as servants, but as sons and daughters of the king. This is remarkable who would have made this story up? Nobody. How do we enter the kingdom? By being perfectly good servants who obey his every command? Yeah, right. Not possible. We are all disobedient sons. Every single one of us are disobedient children, sons and daughters, who all by nature and by choice disobey the vineyard owner. And so the only way to enter the kingdom then is by surrendering to his mercy and repentance, submitting ourselves to his lordship and seeking shelter in his son. And when we do, we find that our sins are pardoned. Why? Because of our fruit? No, because of his fruit. It's really that simple. For Jesus Christ is the one, the only son of God who perfectly surrendered to the father's will so much so that he willingly entered a vineyard full of rebels that he knew were going to kill him. I wouldn't have done that, but Christ did, and why? So that he could become the cornerstone of shelter for those who repent and trust in him. And that is the only way to be worthy enough for the kingdom, to accept his mercy and grace through repentance, which then allows us to produce the fruit worthy of the kingdom. But, For those who do reject him, for those who continue to despise him and rebel against him, just like the religious leaders do in verses 45 and 46, what will happen? One day, very soon, they will look upon Christ, not with marvelous joy, like the text says, but with horror, with dread. And so we must surrender, we must submit, and we must seek shelter in the authority of God's Son, who is Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the full authority, the creator of this universe who spoke it into existence with the power of his voice, who upholds it by the power of his might. All the molecules in our bodies hold together, not because we will it, but because he wills it. And so if we trust in him, he will become to us a cornerstone of salvation instead of a stone of judgment. And that's really the choice that we have here. It's really, that, it's really that simple. You can either willingly submit to Christ's authority now and he will become to you a savior. He will become to you a cornerstone of safety. Or you can rebel and refuse to submit to his authority, though knowing well, know full well if you do that, you will one day be forced to bow the knee. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you can do it now and he will become your savior or you can be forced to do it later against your will, where he will not be your savior, but your judge. He won't be your cornerstone, but a stone that crushes you. And so instead of being crushed by him, let's submit. Let's submit to his authority. Submit to him as our Lord and savior, for when we do, we will be able to say, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Because Jesus is marvelous. He is wonderful. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And when we do that, our hearts will be able to sing as we're going to sing in a moment here. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Why would I ever want to try to be the king when he is worthy of being our king? So then, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to come before you in repentance, that we would trust in your mercy and grace and the righteousness that you give to us freely and fully by the work of Jesus. Father, we pray for the one here today who does not know Christ, who's trusting in their righteousness. Maybe they're thinking that they are moral enough, they are good enough, that they don't need mercy, kindness, or grace. We ask that they would repent. And Father, we pray also for the prodigal who is here today who thinks that they are not worthy of the kingdom. It's true. But by your mercy and grace and your kindness, through the blood of Jesus, all of us, no matter which brother we are, can be worthy of the kingdom because Christ is worthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.